morning we, uh, we get the privilege of starting a new sermon series. And uh, if today's your first day with us, our typical pattern around here is that we uh, work through books of the Bible. And uh, today we're beginning a new series through a book of the Bible, the Gospel according to Mark, Mark's Gospel. And uh, this sermon series is going to take us over two years of sermons, and we're going to break it up along the way. But, uh, but this fall we're going to be focusing on Mark chapters 1, 2, and 3 for, uh, for this series, Jesus Is. And uh, we'll, I'm going to give them a couple more minutes to come back in because a bunch of them went out. And I just say as I'm doing that, that uh, next Sunday is going to be a big day around here again. We've got new uh, small groups starting up at 930. And if you're interested in getting involved in a group like that with people who love the Lord and who would encourage you and lift you up, you definitely want to check that out. You can go to our website, cbcluling.com slash smallgroups. Or you can go, I think it's go.cbcluling.com slash sg. And uh, you can check out all those groups and make sure that you're a part of them. Um, so I think what we want to do this morning is we want to just begin our time together by reading God's Word. You know, Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and Satan tempted him to turn a stone into bread. And Jesus told Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And when we read the Bible, God speaks to us. And so because of that, I want to invite you today to stand with me as we read God's Word. And we're going to be reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Mark 1, 1 through 9. I hope you have a copy of God's Word. If not, just listen carefully and hear what God's Word says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were coming out to him. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, we believe that these are your words, and so we ask you to build us up by them, that we'd be fed by them and changed by them. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Now listen, in 1971, a man named Dan Cooper went into the airport in Portland, Oregon, and bought a one-way ticket to Seattle, Washington. He's wearing a nice black suit, slender black tie, looked official, respectable. But once the plane got in the air, his true character came out. And he handed a note to a stewardess that says, I've got a bomb in my suitcase, and I've got some demands. And so the stewardess sat down beside him, and he explained that he was after three things. $20,000 in $20 bills, four parachutes, and a crew that would fly into Mexico City. And so when they got to Seattle, the plane landed on the tarmac, got to their uh, little docking place. What do you call those? The gate. 
And 36 passengers got off the plane, and $20,000 and four parachutes came back on board. They went back up in the air and headed towards Mexico City. But Dan Cooper never made it there. Somewhere between Seattle and Reno, he opened up a back door and parachuted out of the airplane, taking his $200,000 with him. All right. I, I don't know when I first heard this story, but I remember this picture from being a child because it creeped me out. This was the official artist's rendering of two descriptions given by two different flight attendants of the man that came to be known as D.B. Cooper. Uh, the FBI had an open investigation into his identity and his whereabouts until 2016. For 45 years, they looked for this guy, D.B. Cooper, and they never found any trace of him. They had all kind of leads, and they had a few different suspects that they thought might fit the bill, but in the end, they never came down on any particular person, and they don't even know what happened to him. If he made it out alive, he took his $200,000 to Reno and, uh, I guess, lived his be best life. I don't know what ended up happening to D.B. Cooper. Nobody does, and the case is closed. D.B. Cooper, by the FBI's own admission on their website, says... He pulled off a daring hijack, and his disappearance remains an intriguing mystery. That's the FBI's own words. Who is this guy? What's he all about? Got a picture. But can we really say we know him at all? Now, I'm convinced a similar thing that what happened to D.B. Cooper happens for people with Jesus. They know things about him. They know that he's the most discussed and influential man in human history. Uh, they know that his influence can be felt in the world in places like the legal system and in art. I mean, some of the world's best art focuses on Jesus. Um, because of that, people think they know all about him. They know what he looks like. Here he is with golden eyes. You've probably seen the picture of him with blue eyes. People think they know him. Some people say he's a great teacher. Other people really question whether he was a historical figure at all. And then you've got people like us at a Christian church who have reoriented our whole life to his reality. And at the end of the day, you take all that and dig behind the Bible trivia, the misconceptions, the works of art, cultural references, and you, you may be tempted to ask the question that I asked this summer, who is Jesus really? Really, who is he? Who's, who is he? What is he about? Now, I've come to believe that this is probably the most important question anyone could ever ask in life. And the outcome, the, the answer you choose, will determine the outcome of your life. It's the most important question anyone could ask. And thankfully, we're not like the FBI, left to track down leads until they reach a dead end. We don't have to go on some kind of historical manhunt. You don't have to be an archaeologist. Instead, we're given a book that tells us with authority and clarity who Jesus is. In fact, I think Mark's gospel pulls it all together for us. Every story, every word recorded, everything written helps us understand who Jesus is. And if you take a minute, I mean, it'd take you probably about 90 minutes to 120 minutes, depending on how fast you read, and you were to read through the 16 chapters of Mark's gospel. And I'd encourage you to do it. It doesn't take long. A few episodes of your favorite show um, to read it. What you, what you realize is... If Jesus is who he says he is, and if he did the things that are recorded by the authors of Scripture in the Bible, then you come face to face with somebody who changes everything. 
If, if he really hung up on a cross and was buried in a tomb only to rise again three days later, you need to pay attention to who this man is. And so what we're going to do over the next couple of years is peel away. Peel away what we think we know about Jesus, our misconceptions. And we want to see who the Bible says Jesus is. We want to know from his own mouth how we should think about him. And after having thought that way, how we should live in light of his true identity. Uh, Mark set out to give us that. It was his goal. Writing about 50 years after the events he records, he wanted to make sure that the next generation of Christians had a solid, trustworthy account of Jesus' life. That they knew who he was and what his life meant for them. And he wanted people like me and you to come to grips with it, to deal with it, so that we could live our lives to make Jesus famous. And from his opening line in the passage we just read, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he gives to us one thing after the next, constructing for us an identity of who Jesus is. So, next couple years, stick with me. We'll take some breaks so we don't get bogged down or anything. But we're going to see who Jesus is and what he's all about. So, that's where we are, Mark chapter 1. And maybe you're surprised to find that in a story that claims to be about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we don't begin with Jesus at all, but we get, begin with the words of some prophet named Isaiah and some guy named John who's baptizing people. And it's surprising maybe to us, but if you're a reader of the Bible, you know that it's really in line with what God has been doing. By the time Jesus arrives on the scene, God has already been at work in the world. The Bible tells us that a couple thousand years before Jesus was born, there was an ancient family of people called by their name, the name of their ancestor, Israel. And they were slaves in Egypt. They'd been uh, forced to build the Pharaoh's monuments. And they were oppressed. And over generations, their oppression grew worse and worse until they cried out to their God for help. And when that God heard their cry, he sent a redeemer named Moses to let his people go and to lead them out of Egypt miraculously across the Red Sea for 40 years to the wilderness until finally God brought them to a land they could call their own, the land of Israel. And he set up a wonderful kingdom where he ruled over them with his law. Eventually, he raised up a man named David who ruled over his people as king. And David's son Solomon took over after David's death. But the common theme to God's relationship with his people, Israel, was their persistent rebellion. It seemed like everywhere they went and everything they did, they decided to rebel against their God's authority and to break his law. You know, God is patient, so at first he sort of uh, sent them a prophet to call them back to repentance and faithfulness. And over time, when they started treating those prophets poorly, he sent more and more with deeper and darker warnings about the judgment that was going to come, until eventually God's patience ran out, and he sent his people off into exile in Babylon. Being found in exile, the people of Israel were, in a sense, back where they'd started, dispossessed of their homeland, slaves again, suffering under the judgment of their God. But if you've read the Old Testament, you know that those prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of the minor prophets, while they, they spoke words of warning, they also offered a glimmer of hope. That maybe perhaps once God's strange work of judgment was done, he would once again be merciful to his people. And so God says in Isaiah chapter 40, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Enough judgment, he says. Speak now comfort. And here's what he promised through Isaiah to do. A voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. And let the rough ground become a plain, and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In exile, Israel's guilt pressed in on them, and they knew themselves to be under the judgment of God. But the prophets promised a day when God would once again be merciful to His people. He would return and restore to them the blessedness that they had once knew. That they'd live with Him as their God in perfect fellowship. He'd bring them back on a new exodus to live in the promised land again. Again, Israel's God spoke through His prophet Malachi, and He said, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger before your face, and he's going to clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. Listen, the prophets made it clear. Though God had judged his people and taken them into exile, one day he would renew his covenant and show mercy Again, in that day they'd experience a new reign of God's blessedness that he says in the prophet Joel that he'll pour out his spirit on them. He says in Jeremiah that I'll pour my spirit out on you and blessing on all your descendants. The prophets held out hope for the future. At the same time, they promised future judgment that when God appeared, he would deal with his people's sinfulness once and for all so that the pattern of rebellion and repentance would be broken and they could live with him forever. Over time, these unfulfilled promises started to take shape in God's people's mind until they centered on an individual that they called God's anointed servant, or the Hebrew word is Messiah. This one individual who would in himself bring God's presence and to reign over them as David had once done in a perfect and beautiful kingdom. According to Mark... Mark chapter 1, the prophecy-induced expectation provides us the appropriate context to understand the appearance of John the Baptist in the wilderness and the arrival of Jesus. It's like right at the beginning of his gospel, before Jesus even appears on the scene, Mark has to lay the groundwork to fill up the garden bed with soil so that the Messiah who arrives could grow, so that we could understand him for ourselves. Mark tells us, the prophets promised a Messiah. But if you know anything else about Jesus, you've got to know that. That when he appears on the scene, he does so not out of thin air, but as a fulfillment of the prophets' promise of a future Messiah. But after quoting the Old Testament prophets, Mark immediately shifts his focus. Says, Thus is written in Isaiah the prophet. Bam, 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 bam. John appeared in the wilderness. He wants us to understand something. That these prophets and this John are connected. And so he moves from the fulfilled prophecy spoken by Isaiah and in Malachi and in Exodus. And he moves quickly to this figure, John the baptizer. 
He wants us to know something important. And if you're like me, you read this guy, you read the description of him. Here comes uh, John in a shirt made out of camel's hair and a leather belt, and he's eating locusts and wild honey. That's really the thing you want to zero in on. You should be surprised how much time Bible scholars spend talking about what kind of locusts it was he eats. It's just bizarre that that seems to capture our attention. But for Mark, that's not the most important part of John's ministry. I hope you know that. Now, Mark tells us that John appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The thing that's important about John is the message he proclaimed. He proclaimed a baptism of repentance. And in doing so, he shows the connection between his ministry and the ministry of all those prophets who came before, who saw God's people in rebellion and called them to repentance. Here's John again, sounding the same note, beating the same drum, calling God's people back to faithfulness. But what's unique is that while the message is old, the urgency and emphasis is new. See, the, the prophets promised the Messiah was coming, and John proclaimed that that Messiah was near. He said, one's coming who's after me, who's mightier than I am. There's an urgency that comes with John's message because he knew the Messiah was right around the corner. So it's an old message, but it takes on a new urgency. It also takes on a new kind of symbol. He comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This baptism is a big deal. We call him John the Baptist. The Greek says John the baptizer, the one who baptizes. But the idea is that th this baptism that John brings is so characteristic of his ministry that he's qualified not by his family origin. He came from a priestly family. So you think maybe that'd be the thing that Mark would al uh, alert us to. But instead, he alerts us to the fact that he baptizes people. He's a Baptist, just like us. No, not just like us, but similar, I guess. So the deal with this baptism is this, that uh, in the ancient world, they had all kinds of ritual washings. Pagans, Jews, it doesn't matter where you go. They, they uh, symbolized certain things in their religions by washing their hands. Or the Jews had this process where they would walk down into a baptistry kind of like that called a mikvah. They'd walk through and walk out, and it symbolized a personal cleanliness and purity to be set apart to God. But most of those kind of washings were self-administered. You did it to yourself. And they were repeatable. The interesting thing about John's baptism is that each person came to be baptized by John, identifying with his message of repentance. And it was a one-time thing. It marked a clear turning point in their life, that they're repenting, turning their back on their sin, and identifying with John. In a sense, it's kind of like they are recapitulating or, or taking on for themselves the same role that ancient Israel had when they went into the wilderness to follow their guide to the promised land. Here are the people coming to hear John preach about a coming Messiah and the message of repentance. Now, repentance itself is strange. It's this biblical word that we don't really talk about in everyday life, but you, you open the scriptures and you see it over and over and over. And, and repentance really means to change your mind, to, to have a change of mental orientation. But when it's used of a person in a religious context, and especially in the New Testament, I love this, it acknowledges that there is a, an initial relationship that people have with God. And, and in the context of God's relationship with Israel, it was this perfect bond of communion called a covenant, 
where God had taken on Himself all the obligations of meeting with His people and required that they lived according to His standard. And they had deviated from that. They'd gone their own way. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 that we all like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. There was a recognition that though God had given them a standard, the people of Israel had departed from that standard. They had gone after their own sin. The call to repent was to turn their back on their sin and and get back where God wanted them to be. John's ministry of repentance is so notable that it shows up in other places in ancient literature. The uh, ancient Jewish historian named Josephus described it this way. He said, John's repentance, the message John proclaimed and the, the baptism that symbolized the repentance, involved righteous living, justice towards one's neighbor, and a life of true piety toward God. Listen, John proclaimed the Messiah was near And when the people heard it, they prepared themselves to receive him. They went out to him in the wilderness. They took on themselves this obligation for repentance. They humbly admitted where they had deviated from God's standard, and they turned their back on it and offered themselves wholeheartedly to him. They believed what John had promised, or maybe he warned them, that pretty soon Messiah is coming, And when he comes, what will he find? Will he find a rebellious and wayward people? Or will he find a people who have repented of their sins and in humility admitted what he already knows and offered themselves wholeheartedly up to him? That's what John had to know. And when the people heard it, they responded appropriately. All of Judea, he says, and all the people of Jerusalem, everywhere, you can imagine what it must have looked like. Crowds of people streaming out of the city, headed toward the wilderness to see a man in a camel shirt, eating locusts and wild honey, going down into a river to be baptized. Why? What's the significance? If it's not that they had believed for themselves, that the ancient promises held up by the prophets and now proclaimed by John that the Messiah was near, meant that they had to do something. They had to prepare themselves for his arrival. For when he came, he wasn't going to baptize them with water. He was going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That when he arrived, he was going to fulfill those promises of future blessedness. When God said, I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh, he was going to do it through his Messiah who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. When he said through Malachi that I'm going to be like a refiner's fire and I'm going to purify my people, I'm going to take their heart of stone and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh so they never depart from me again. They believed that Messiah was near and when he came, he was going to do that for those who were ready. And so they went down into the river and they came up marking a clear departure from the life they had lived in sin and offering themselves up to God again. They had gone, in a way, on that new exodus that God had promised through Isaiah. They'd gone to the wilderness to be brought back to God. And then one day, while the streams of people make their pilgrimage to John, there's another man among them. A man from Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth. And he appeared and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, it's totally understated. Kind of slips it in there, and we're going to look at it in more detail next week. 
But this is Mark's first suggestion that Jesus is the Messiah that the prophets had promised. The Messiah that John had proclaimed and that the people had prepared themselves for. And the rest of the book is going to prove it. Jesus is the Messiah who came to save his people and establish his kingdom. And at first, people can hardly believe it. Got a few verses from the rest of the gospel to read to you. In Mark 1, they, they see him cast out a demon in the synagogue in Capernaum. And they're amazed. They say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. They ask in Mark 6, Is this not the carpenter's son, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? Even his own disciples, after they're caught out on the Sea of Galilee, and there's a storm that comes up, and then Jesus wakes up from his, his nap, and they say, you know, we're about to die. And he says, don't worry about it. You guys have no faith whatsoever. Peace be still. And the storm calms down and the winds die off. And his disciples look at each other. And they say, who even is this that the wind and the seas obey him? Mark knows up front. He's writing 50 years after the fact. He's not in the dark about who Jesus is. He's not on a manhunt. Not trying to piece together, follow leads. He knows right up front, Jesus is the Messiah who came to save his people from their sins and establish his kingdom. But we get the privilege of walking along as he tells the story and seeing people discover it for themselves. And, and by the time you get to Mark 16, there's Jesus breathing his last on a cross. And of all people, a Roman centurion says, Surely this man was the Son of God. All the questions and suggestions, the miracles, the teaching, they come together unambiguously to identify for us, like in bright neon lights, who Jesus is. Jesus Christ is the Messiah promised by the prophets in the Old Testament, proclaimed by John, prepared for by people, and now proved by Mark. You see, in telling the story of Jesus' life, Mark sets out to do something that we have to thank him for. He says he's going to tell us the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the ancient world, gospel was not a uniquely Christian term. It was used to describe all types of things. But over time, it's, take on, it's taken on a, a kind of a life of its own. It defines who we are as Christians. It, of course, means good news. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. Because from first to last, it tells us that the God who redeemed his people, Israel, has been at work even before that. And he created our world and, and prepared a perfect place on it for people. And when he made them, he placed them in this perfect place, promised to be their God, to provide to them everything they needed. He just gave them one rule. And that one rule proved too much for them to bear. They rebelled against his authority. And the Bible calls that rebellion sin. They transgressed his law. They failed to attain to the standard that he had set for them. Because of that sin, they came under his judgment and they deserved every kind of punishment that he could throw their way. Whatever he decided to do would have been right. He's just and holy. They are not. Because of those first people's sin, you and I, us, me and you, I'm not talking in general terms. I'm talking about you guys and me guys, us. We inherit from them a sinful nature, a proclivity within ourselves coming from somewhere deep to only live for ourselves, to be selfish and self-serving to follow in their paths of sin. 
And as a result, we are also under the judgment of God. Every one of us. But the gospel, Mark's story that he writes down for us, is the good news that God didn't leave us to our sin. But in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh and to live a sinless life, the life that you and I should have lived, fully attaining to the standard that God had set. And at the end of that perfect life, he went up on a cross to die the death that you and I deserve. So that whoever comes to him, he's going to say this in Mark 1, 14 and 15, whoever comes to him and repents of their sin and believes in the gospel will be saved. That's the good news. And after he was crucified, they put him in that tomb and they raised him up again. Praise the Lord, he is alive, never die again. And he promises to us all those blessings that the prophets had held out to pour out His Spirit on us, to make us new creations, to replace our heart of stone, the heart that's bent in on itself and only wants what it wants, to want what God wants, to replace our selfishness for love. That's what God wants for us. That's the good news. That's what Mark's story sets out to tell. How Jesus of Nazareth, a man who showed up among the crowds to be baptized by John, how could he have any impact in the life you and I live? And he does it in verse 9, and here's Jesus to be baptized by John. You see, the crowds who'd prepared themselves for the Messiah, who believed with all they had that maybe the prophets were onto something. Maybe though it had been hundreds of years since those prophecies had been given, and even though the world seemed to be spinning out of control and like nothing good could ever come from it, maybe their God would remember them again. Maybe he would hear their prayer and he would respond. Maybe he would finally send his Messiah to usher in the kingdom. They looked forwards in hope. But y'all, we get the privilege of looking back to seeing the fullness. What the things they hope for, what Peter says that prophets long to look into are now crystal clear for me and you. We don't have to wonder who the Messiah is. We know right up front that Jesus is the Messiah who came to save his people from their sins and establish his kingdom. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the King. Don't go on a manhunt wondering who he is, trying to discover his true identity. It's right here before us in God's word, laid out clearly. This is who Jesus is. Do you know Jesus like that? I'm not talking about the misconception, the History Channel shows that come on every year around Easter time. I'm talking about, do you know Jesus as he has revealed himself to us in his book, in the Bible? Do you know Jesus as Savior, as Messiah, as Lord, as King? Have you come to that place we believe that the Bible is true when it tells us who Jesus is. And it's true when it gives us requirements for getting in on his eternal life and on the blessedness he promises to bring. I mean, the promise is clear. Put in black and white for me and you. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the promise. That's the good news of the gospel put on clear display for you. Jesus came so that you could know him as your Messiah and Lord. This morning, if you don't know Jesus like that, we're going to have prayer team members um, in the back of our sanctuary while we're singing this last song. I'd lo they'd love to talk to you and pray with you. While we're eating hamburgers and hot dogs, come talk to me. I'd love to talk with you about who Jesus is, who Jesus is to me, the difference he's made in my life. I want him to make that same difference for you. You pray with me.